If I was designing, it'd be disastrous. My daughter's in the audience, and she's seen my DIY. So, you know, but, but the people who know what they're doing when it comes to building, they have plans and they draw those out, and that's what generates the city's plan right the way down to the individual houses. And if that was to go wrong, imagine if the plans were wrong, what you'd end up with is towns made up of all of the same kind of building, perhaps. All of the same kind of building replicated, like here we have a city that's made entirely out of pubs. Now, some of you might call that heaven, other people like me would call it Newcastle. Um, actually, I shouldn't say that, but actually, Newcastle spent 14 years in Newcastle's work in my medical training, it's a fantastic place. But you get the point, if you had a city that was made, or a town that was made up of all the same buildings, that were all replicated, it wouldn't be that functional. In fact, if we didn't have a hospital, or we didn't have a police station, we didn't have a school, it would actually be pretty pathological. And it wouldn't work very well, and actually would probably eventually die. So what are the blueprints or the architectural drawings for the cities that are tissues? Well, that's our DNA. So in our DNA, our DNA, which you've probably heard of, who's heard of DNA? Excellent. So the DNA is basically the architectural plan for all of the cells, and it's packaged into chromosomes. We've got 46 chromosomes in our cells, 23 pairs. And they are like the architectural blueprints for the cell, telling the cell what to do, and then beyond the cells, how they should fit together to make up tissues, and then beyond the tissues for organs. And it's this fantastic architectural design that's built into this through this series of letters, which is like the town planning for your tissues. Now, we talked about what it would be like if something went wrong with a town plan, such that you had too many pubs in your town. Well, if you have a mistake in the plan of the cells, which is the DNA, it actually can encode cancer. So we need to talk a little bit about what we mean by that in terms of mistakes in DNA. So DNA is the code, it's the blueprint, it's the architectural plan for our cells and for our tissues. And if it goes wrong, you can end up with a devastating situation called cancer. So what does that look like? So here we have a normal tissue. I'll show you a picture of the kidney. This is a normal uh, representation of a normal tissue. And all these cells, are they look pretty ordered, don't they? Yep, and up here you've got sort of nice order as well. They're all similar sizes, all similar shape of nuclei. They've got the right number of nuclei in the cell, so that's pretty good. And that's because you have two types of genes in your cells. You have many more than that, but when it comes to cancer, we think about two types of genes. Oncogenes, and they have the potential to drive cancer. And they're a bit like an accelerator pedal on a car. And then we have genes that are like brakes on a car. And we call those tumor suppressor genes. And these are designed to give you just about the right amount of growth and just about the right amount of, of uh, breaking so you don't grow too much. And the balance of these genes functioning between an accelerator pedal and between a brake pedal keep these tissues nicely in check. Keep the right number of cells. It's not growing too fast. It's not growing too slowly. It's just about right, just like the little teddy bear's porridge in the three teddy bears. It's just about right, perfect, between the balance of this. Now you can imagine if you get a mistake in one of these genes that's supposed to be the accelerator such that the foot goes straight to the floor. Or if you get a mistake in a gene that's supposed to be a brake such that your brakes fail, which is what these mutations are in cancer, then you can have too much acceleration and not enough braking. And what happens is these cells start to lose their normal control patterns. They disrespect the boundaries that would normally be this tissue. And that's what cancer is. It's when you get too many of the kind of cell, and the cell itself is an aberrant cell, it's gone wrong. 
and it grows and it divides and it divides and it divides and it starts to take over this, this tissue in a way that's grossly abnormal. And that is essentially what cancer is. So if we look at that in an actual cancer, this is, does anyone know what tissue this is? Colon. Brilliant, very good. So this is a normal layer of the colon because it's nicely ordered. It's got lots of crypts in it here, which is, this is producing the normal cells that would produce mucus that would normally go out so you can poop easily. So that's a, a normal lining of the colon. Oh, and something drastic has gone wrong here. And this is a poorly differentiated adenocarcinoma of the colon. You can see anybody, you don't have to have a medical degree or the salary of a pathologist to be able to see that this is grossly abnormal. So something drastic has happened here. And that's basically the principle of cancer. Okay, but it's a bit more complicated than that. So we've talked a little bit about the kind of difference in growth patterns that happen. But we know now, through many, many years of research, there's actually something more to cancer, which makes it so complicated. So we talked a bit about gene mutations, mistakes in that blueprint that makes up cancer. But also there's something called epigenetics, which you may have heard about. Has anyone heard of epigenetics? <coughs> wow, that's fantastic. Lots of people have heard of epigenetics. So one way of thinking about epigenetics is a bit like a light switch. And so all the wiring is intact, the light bulb's intact, but you need to switch it on to get the light to work. And that's how genes work. Everything can be there, the wiring can be there, uh, the actual ability to make the genes express, the RNA that's produced in the protein, and everything will work, but there's a light switch at the beginning of each gene, and that's, um, that's switched on and, off, on and off, and that's controlled by something called epigenetic marks. Now you can imagine, if you have a mark, if you leave your light permanently on, like my kids do, then your bills go sky high. But also, if you leave your lights permanently on in cancer, that could drive a gene that's really um, sort of aggressive and making a cancer fall. Or if you switch the light off when it should be on, that could be like losing the break, the tumor suppressor gene. So epigenetics have a important role to play in cancer. We also know that cancers are very, very good at recruiting different kinds of blood vessels. They're also very good at escaping the immune system. So your immune system is important to make sure you don't get certain kinds of infections. When you get them, you can fight them off. Now cancer cells, I've already told you, are abnormal. Now if I took somebody's kidney and put it in your body and it wasn't matched, you'd reject it. Now cancers are abnormal tissue, so why don't you reject them? You should do. Well, a lot of the time, we know now, and we'll talk about this in a moment, is because cancers have been incredibly good at evading the immune system. And so that's one aspect that makes cancers complicated. Then other aspects is that cancers can hijack chemical messages that flow around the blood like hormones. That's particularly important in breast cancer and prostate cancer, and that can drive some of these tumor types. And then also, the matrix proteins, the supporting structures around tissues are important. So this gives you an idea that the whole global aspect of tissues that are malignant is very complicated, and it drives the disease, and it's what makes it hard to understand and hard to treat. Okay, but this is the real problem that we know associated with cancer. So actually, if you had tumors that just stayed in one place, suppose they thought about breast cancer for a moment, and all it ever did was stay in the breast as a single bond, actually, we would be able to cure that most of the time. But it doesn't. It actually spreads out to the liver, it spreads to the bone, to bone and it also spreads to the brain. If you think about lung cancer, that also spreads out to the bone, it can also spread to the brain, and spread to the liver, and to the adrenal glands. And all of these cancers spread around the body. And actually 90% of death associated with cancer is cost of metastatic disease, cost of this capacity of cells 
in cancer, not just to not respect the boundary of their own tissue, but not respect the boundary of their organ, to go anywhere they want in the body and set up shop. And that ability to migrate and metastasize around the body is essentially what makes cancer, cancer so lethal and so difficult to treat. Okay, so does that make sense? Does that give you an introduction to what cancer is? Does that make a little bit of sense? Okay. So how big a problem is cancer? How many cases of cancer do you think there are every year? Go shout something out. Somebody shout something out. In the world, how many cases of cancer are there? Billions. Very good. Okay, so we've already talked about one in two of us, unfortunately, will get cancer in our lifetime. And these are the common types of cancer you'll recognize. This is a strange-looking person, half man, half woman. But nonetheless, you get the idea. So there's lung cancer, there's kidney, breast. These are the common types of cancer that we get. Okay, But this is the scary fact that keeps people like me awake at night. So in 2010, there were 13.3 million cases of cancer uh, reported in the world, new cases every year. And that cost about $290 billion, because the world market works on dollars. We know conservatively in the next 20 years from this point, that will go up to 21.5 million cases and go up to 458 billion in cost. So the cost of cancer, both to humankind in terms of the morbidity, the death, and the sickness it causes, and in terms of the amount of money it costs to look after those people, and also the money we lose because those people can't function properly and do their jobs, is huge. So cancer is a major problem, a massive problem the world is facing, and this is because the population is aging and also because some cancers are actually increasing in their incidence. Now, I'm a paediatric cancer doctor, and I treat kidneys with cancer. And for me, what's particularly distressing is it's the number one cause of disease-related death among children. If you're under age of 20 and you're going to die of a disease, you will die of cancer before anything else. That's a horrible fact, and it's not changed for many, many years. So cancer is a terrible problem for adults, but it's a devastating problem for children and the entire family and the children whose families uh, suffer from childhood cancer. So this is a huge problem. <coughs> but it's not all bad news. Not all bad news. So if we look at the successes we've had in cancer, we go back to the 1970s, there were terrible things like flares and Starsky and Hutch and things like that. <laughs> and also, cancer was horrendous. You had, uh, and the chance of surviving 10 years or more was less than 25%. So obviously, uh, three out of, you know, sort of a large proportion of people you had 10 people with cancer, seven and a half of them would die, 75 people would die, 100, etc. But actually, in a short space of time, short space of time, 30 to 40 years, that rate has doubled in survival. So now, if you're diagnosed with cancer, at the moment, it's slightly above this now, you have more than a 50% chance of surviving more than 10 years. But imagine you're sat there going, well, that's good, but flipping heck, a 50-50 chance of dying, that's just really not good enough. And it isn't good enough. It's really quite appalling. If you think about scientific advances we have, the investment we make in cancer, and we think that all these people around the world are beavering away in cancer. A lot of my lab are here, thank you guys for coming. And they do fantastic work every day researching cancer. But this is just not good enough. There are too many adults and too many kiddies, too many grandparents, too many parents, too many sisters, too many brothers, too many children die of cancer every single day. And it's not good enough. So we have to think about how we can stop it. So in the last sort of half an hour or so, 20 minutes or so, I'm going to talk about how we can think about killing cancer. We're going to leave plenty of time if people want to discuss this or ask questions or anything like that. 
So how do we kill cancer? Or how do we stop cancer in its tracks? Well, the first thing I want to um, talk about, and I really want to impress on you, if you think of anything else, I don't remember anything else other than my awful jokes, is early detection. There is no question that the biggest impact we can have today on cancer is to detect it early. Even if we develop no more new treatments for cancer, if we stopped making new drugs, we stopped making surgical innovations, we stopped generating better radiation therapy, if all we did is diagnose more patients with cancer early, we have a greater effect on the survival from cancer than anything else. And I'm going to explain that to you in the next few slides. So this is, um, a who's got teenagers in there? <laughs> so this is a typical teenager's room. Okay, actually that's a bit like home through, sorry. Uh, so it's not home through, but it could be. Um, so, so this is a typical teenager's room. Now, any mother or father who has to clean this up, or get their daughters to clean it up, or their son to clean it up, they can go in this room and think, what a bloody mess, this is an absolute nightmare. This is going to take me hours to clean up. However, at one stage, when the house was probably first built, this was tidy, and there was probably a single sock on the floor. And if you pick that sock up and put it away, and you always did that, you would never be left with this devastation. And that's the principle of early detection. Too often with cancer, we wait until it's like this, until it's a mess, until the disease has gone beyond control, until it's spread around to the lungs or the bones or the liver. And it really is a despicably messy teenage room, and we have to clean it up. And sometimes, as many of got teenagers, it's impossible. You know, you, get, you go in there as a surgeon, you took everything up, and then half an hour later, it looks exactly the same. How does that happen? But that's, that's what messy rooms do. But if we were to pick up that first sock, pick it up when it was first going wrong, it would stay clean, tidy, and well-ordered. And that is the principle, to some extent, of early detection. So let's talk about cancer and early detection. And I think these are some startling figures that might help you to sort of get your head around it. So these are for the sort of eight most common types of cancer. We looked at those, includes breast, bowel, prostate, etc. Now we talk about cancer in terms of staging, so that's an important thing to think about. So you'll, talk, you'll hear people talk about cancer in terms of grades and stage. So grades are not like what you get at school, like D's or whatever, or an F. Uh, grades are what the tissue looks like down the microscope, and that's what pathologists talk about. So they will look at a tissue down the microscope, and they'll go, ooh, that's a high-grade tumour. And what they mean by that is that it looks like it's got a lot of um, mitosis or division going on. It looks nasty. The cells are all the wrong shape. They don't look right anymore. They've got two nuclei, and they should only have one. They're invading into surrounding tissues. It looks nasty, and that's a high-grade tumour. And it really is that simple, and they get paid all that money. No, it really is that simple. It's, uh, my pathologist colleagues are going to kill me. But um, there aren't anybody here as pathologists. No, okay. Um, so that's a high-grade tumour. A low-grade tumour is one that actually looks quite like the ordinary tissue. In fact, if you looked at it, you think, well, that actually looks quite like skin. Or that looks quite like normal colon. Or like normal stomach. And that's a low-grade tumour. It's not quite got nasty. That's a, a low-grade tumour. We also talk about stages. A stage is something different. It's not like this stage. It's how far the disease has spread. So stage one usually means, it doesn't matter what the tissue is, what the tumour is, it means it's usually localised to the tissue. So for example, stage one colon cancer is completely contained within the lining of the colon. It's not spread anywhere else. 
Stage two means it's gone a bit further. Maybe it's broken out through the first layer of that tissue that it's in. Stage three means it's usually locally invaded, so it's gone out through the wall of the tissue, but it's not yet metastasized. And stage four means it's all health broken loose, and it's actually gone throughout the body, and there's metastasis. And so that's how we talk about staging a cancer. Now, if we think about that, this is what I mean by early detection. So now you're all cancer experts. Stage one or stage two, is that good or bad? Good. So if you're stage one or stage two, and you have one of the eight common types of cancer, if you were diagnosed with stage one or stage two cancer today, you've got an 81% chance of being, survived, being alive at 10 years. It's fantastic. But if you take the same cancer and just wait until you're stage three or stage four, it goes down to 26%. So simply di di um, diagnosing cancer at this stage will triple the survival rate of cancer. Just by diagnosing it early, even if we don't develop any more new treatments, and that's fantastic. I'm going to give you some examples of how we can do that in a moment. Now, the bad news for England is we're rubbish at diagnosing cancer early. One of the worst countries, in fact. Quite shameful. In fact, if we look at cancers, you might not think this is bad, but 73%, only three quarters of patients are diagnosed with early cancer. Quarter of all patients, that's one in four, are diagnosed with late cancer. And, and they, those patients have less than a 25% chance of being cured. So we need to move this needle all the way further up here so that everybody is being diagnosed early. And the reason why I'm so passionate about that is early diagnosis doesn't begin in a hospital. It doesn't begin with idiots like me. It begins with clever people like you. It begins with the people whose mums say, you know, I don't quite feel quite right. Or I was in the shower the other day and I noticed I had a lump in my breast. It begins with you. That's where early diagnosis has to start. Or it begins with a parent who takes a picture of their child and notices that the eyes aren't quite right on their kid when they take a picture. The number of kiddies I diagnosed with retinoblastoma because they had a picture taken and one of their eyeballs was white. So there was a tumor in the back of the eye. So red eye on the camera, you see a child with a white eye, that kid's got a retinoblastoma. And that's how often it's diagnosed. And that's early detection. So early detection is a crucial thing that we can all play a role with. You don't have to have a medical degree, degree to be an early detection. You just have to think, this is not quite right. And one of the fantastic things about being a pediatrician is you've got things called mums and dads. And mums and dads are absolutely awesome. If you're a pediatrician and, you're a mother or, and a mother or father of a child says to you, there is something wrong with my child, I don't know what the problem is, but there's something wrong with my child, you ignore them at your peril as a pediatrician. Because mums and dads are usually always right. And they're more useful than any blood test. But it's the same when you know your relatives, when you know your brothers and sisters, those of you getting into the sort of age where you might think about getting cancer, or your mum and dad, or your grandparents. If something's not quite right, and they think they've got a lump somewhere, persuade them to go and get it checked out, because early detection absolutely saves lives. Okay, so let's think of an example of that. Let's think of a real-world cancer example. So let's think about prostate cancer. Hands up here who's got a prostate. If you're not sure, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> okay, if you've got a prostate. Now, if you're over the age of 50, 60, I would hope that most of you have your prostate and specific antigen check. That's PSA. And PSA is just a protein that is made by the prostate. But it's made by prostate cancer. So when it gets too much in your blood, it's because you get abnormal tissue 
It's being pumped out by the prostate cancer, and you're making too much of it. And we all go and have our prostate-specific uh, antigen checked. I have never had it done yet, because hopefully I'm not old enough yet. And the other reason is because you have this done, and then somebody puts a finger up your bottom. But that's another good reason not to have your PSA test. But you must have your prostate-specific antigen, uh, antigen tested. Okay. But it's not a very good test. It's okay, but it's not brilliant. So here we have 100 men. If you're blue, you're healthy. Okay. Now here we have five guys who had a positive prostate-specific antigen test. And it tells us that all these guys have got cancer. And some of these guys will go on and get their prostates taken out. But in fact, there is no cancer. And we know that five out of, of these 100 guys who have a positive, that these guys have a positive, that five of the positive tests will be negative. They're not real, they're called false positives. And if they don't really have cancer. And you can imagine the devastation if you go and have to have your prostate taken out and all of the um, side effects that go along with that and the trauma, etc., when you didn't need to have your prostate taken out. Even more worrying, I think, is two of these guys will have a negative test. That's called a false negative. And they actually did have cancer. In which case, they should have had their prostate taken out of some treatment, and we missed it. And in three cases, we'll get it right. Now, who thinks this is a good test? It's okay, because it's a test, right? And it's better than nothing, but it's not brilliant. And so, that's why I moved from the United States, United States, from Memphis, back here to Cambridge, because Cambridge is awesome. Absolutely awesome. You have, in this city, the br most bright people, when I arrived, the IQ lowered somewhat, but <laughs> the brightest scientists in the world here in Cambridge. Absolutely fantastic. And it's not just doctors, it's not just people who go around pretending they know what to talk about, like me. It's also engineers and physicists and chemists, all the really clever boffins. They are the magicians in this city. They are the people who are actually going to cure cancer. And I'm going to share with you just an example of how they're doing that. So we put together a, a, a competition um, in the Cancer Centre here, which I'll talk about in a moment, to say, okay, let's improve on these kind of diagnostic tests. And so this is so cool. This is so cool. So from the Department of Engineering here, the Electronic Devices and Materials Group, and um, these are people who talk like that. Right, that's great. They're very strange people, but they're absolutely fantastically bright. And here from the Cambridge Cancer Centre, this guy invented this amazing, amazing test. So has anyone put a ruler on the desk and twanged it and goes boing? It's fantastic. So this guy did that with molecules. Amazing. I don't know how you do that. I mean, I don't know how you get a molecule. No, I didn't do it like that. But, but what he did is he designed a silicon chip which would pick up proteins, the length of the protein, and it would twang it like a ruler. And by doing that, you could tell exactly what kind of protein was there. But it could do it on a silicon chip, and it could take a complex set of proteins, which prostate-specific antigen is, and break it down into its different parts, into four proteins, and tell you the proportion of the different proteins that were there. And that's an accurate test. What our test does at the moment, prostate-specific antigen does, is it takes all of the proteins and goes, mm, yeah, ooh, I think there's a poof, yeah, that's poor, it's pretty high. That's rubbish. What this one does is says, you've got this much of type 1, this much of type 2 protein, this much of type 3 protein, this much of type 4 protein, and in these ratios, this person's got prostate cancer. Not only that, because it's on a chip, when they put the blood through it, it texts the results to your mobile phone. That's so cool. And also to your doctor, and it says, your test is 1.4, and your last test was 1.3. So they're developing that at the moment in Cambridge. 
That's exciting. That's early diagnosis. And that's what's happening today in Cambridge across many, many other types of cancer. I could tell you, take you through many examples of those. But that's what we're funding here in Cambridge. And it's only that unique um, collection of scientists, so physicians, engineers, electricians, etc., that can do this kind of thing. Okay, the other thing that we can do, so that's early detection. I haven't got anywhere near treatment at the moment, is understanding disease biology. Now, does anybody know what this is apart from an 80s haircut? Does anybody know what this is? Sorry? A mitosis, very good. So it's a very clever person in the audience. So what these are, are these are pieces of string that you find in cells called microtubules. And when the cell divides, it, whoop, it, pulls, it pulls the chromosomes apart that occur across this plate here, and it makes the right amount of, of, of chromosomes in each side of the cell. So understanding how cell works, understanding biology, is really, really important to improve cancer and our knowledge of cancer. So how can that work? And this is just a little bit about the work that my lab does. We work on pediatric brain tumors. So I want people, this is a bit out there, okay? So just tell me what you see in, this, in these pictures. Anybody shout anything out? People. People, excellent, who said that? <laughs> awesome answer. All people, these are all people, it's a great answer. These are all people, anything else? Sorry? They're working, yeah, they're all doing, all doing the same job or all doing different jobs? All doing different jobs, okay, anything else? Different lifestyles, okay? He probably says war, and this probably this probably this guy probably says coffee. So they do they speak they speak different languages. They probably all speak different languages. This guy's a teacher. I think this guy's actually a teacher of the year. Oh, does anybody know if that English guy got teacher of the year or not? He was awesome, that man, teacher. Fantastic. Anyway, so here's a teacher, absolutely fantastic. And this is a business lady, probably CEO of a big company. But they all do different jobs, and they all speak different languages, probably, and they all come from different places. Now, if we think about children's brain tumors, when I started working on children's brain tumors about 30 years ago now, which is a horrendously long time ago, if we took a brain tumor like medulloblastoma, the commonest brain tumor in children, you look down the microscope, and they all look the same. They all look pretty much the same. This is a medulloblastoma. Pathologists are getting paid what they use in medulloblastoma. <laughs> you get all medulloblastoma. I've got to think about pathologists. No, I haven't. I honestly haven't. They're great friends. We've got, so the, the, these are all medulloblastomas, all the same tumour. Now, we started working on something called genomics. Has anybody heard of genomics? Very good. So this is looking at um, two levels, or multiple levels, but it's the genes that are in a cell and their sequence, what that blueprint, and also the language that cells are speaking. And one thing that we found which was amazing is if this all was medulloblastoma, if you imagine these represent um, all of the tumor type medulloblastoma, when we looked at the language that they were speaking, they were all talking different languages, even though they look the same. They're all people. This is the analogy here, they're all people. These were all tumors, they were all medulloblastomas. But to our surprise, when we looked at the genes that they were um, expressing, the language they were talking, they were all very, very different. And not only that, when we looked at their language that they were talking, we could look in the normal developing brain at where that language is normally spoken. So I was uh, a medical student in Newcastle where you say, oh, I've got plenty of Geordies. And that's what they say in Newcastle, a sort of Geordies. And down in Cambridge, they say, oh, yeah, I've plenty of So it's very, very different regional accents, same one, but regional accents. So you could look at the language that the tumor was speaking, look at its regional accent, 
And you could look throughout the brain at those regional accents. And actually what was so exciting was even though these were the same kind of tumour apparently, they all spoke a regional accent and when we looked in the brain, we could see precisely where they came from. So we were able to take one tumour type that we thought was the same kind of tumour and say it's not, it's four different diseases. And in fact, they speak a different language and because of that we know exactly where they're born. So why does that matter? Because one of the tumour types that we looked at, we were able to look through the human genome, um, which is actually, for those who are computer geeks, is about 200 gigabytes. We were actually able to look at that and understand the language that those tumours were speaking. So if you look at this, this is kind of a representation of, it's actually for breast cancer, but it's the same principle. These same tumours that are saying down the microscope actually use different kinds of languages to speak. These are all the names of genes, but they're all talking different languages. And that makes that underlying biology very, very different. And so we can take a tumour that was once a big black box, once that we all thought was exactly the same, and open the lid on it, and start to realise that they're not all the same disease, they're different diseases, so they're going to need different treatments. They're going to need different approaches. And so why does that matter to kiddies, that I'm passionate about with brain tumour? Well, if we go back to that example of medulloblastoma, we used to treat all of our children the same way, like this. Medulloblastoma is a horrible disease. This is a child, this is a parent who I actually know, um, was treated at St. Jude uh, in the States where I was working. So this kiddie would have gone through aggressive surgery, get the tumour taken out of the head, then they would go for radiation, um, several weeks of fractionated treatment, and then they would go and get chemotherapy. Now the devastating thing about this particular treatment is that this child has a very, very high chance of being cured, but an awful chance of surviving intact. In fact, we know that most children who go through this treatment will lose about 20 IQ points. They won't get a job. They'll be long-term dependent on their parents and often will die young of some other uh, condition. That's a high cost for cure. But we do know that when we looked in one of these tumours, it spoke a particular kind of language. And we knew it came from a different kind of the brain. And we knew that actually, from the work we've done, it was highly curable. So what we've been able to do is massively reduce the radiation for these children. And what we're testing now is whether we can get rid of radiation altogether for these kids and still cure them. So that'd be fantastic. We haven't invented any new treatments. All we've done is understand the biology and said this child can be cured just by surgery and a bit of chemotherapy. And if we can do that, that would be magic because then this whole family can look forward to this child growing up, surviving, getting a job, getting married, paying for the wedding, those kind of things. <laughs> so those kind of exciting things to come forward. So, so that kind of thing shows up how we can also, by understanding the biology, actually just alter the treatment that we use at the moment. Okay, what about developing new treatments? This is really, really important. Okay, so I've talked to you about early detection. I've talked to you about altering the current treatments that we have. But of course, someone says we have to develop new treatments. So if we're asking we have to develop new treatments, that immediately poses an obvious question. And that is, why aren't current treatments good enough? Why isn't surgery good enough? Why is radiotherapy not good enough? They're pretty good treatments. I mean, for heaven's sake, neurosurgeons, they go to school, for, uh, go through you know, comprehensive school, like me, and then they go to medical school, and then they go through all of this training, and they're very, very clever people. Why aren't brain surgeons enough to cure cancer? Why aren't general surgeons enough to cure cancer? 
And if they're not quite good enough, why isn't surgery and radiotherapy good enough to cure cancer? This is actually a picture from 1689. It was one of the first successful resections of a tumour. This is the uh, poor lady beforehand. This is the tumour, and this is her afterwards. We don't know whether it came back. But we know that tumour resection alone is usually not good enough, so why not? And I, when I'm teaching medical students, I like to use this analogy. And this is an analogy for the brain. So my lab works on brain tumours. So this is why surgery for cancer isn't good enough. So imagine you put an egg into a cup of water, a glass of water. Do you think you could take that out? Yes, and without making a mess? And we'd get all the egg out? Yes. Now if you crack the egg into the water, would you get it all out? No. That's cancer. So basically, if you've got a brain tumour growing in your head, it doesn't grow like an egg, like a lump. It doesn't, you don't open the head and it goes bloop and plops out onto the floor. It's invaded the entire brain. In fact, if you've got a brain tumour at the front of your head, a type 4 glioblastoma, which my dad passed away from, if you have one of those at the front of your head, we know that when, by the time we see that on a scan, there are cells from it already at the back of the brain, and it's incurable. Because it's like egg in water. You will never get that out completely. So surgery for most cancers is not good enough because it's so invaded, invasive. And the only way um, that you can actually cure that is to remove the entire brain. It's only possible for people like me from Stockport. So you can't actually, you can't actually cure uh, cancer just by removing surgically the tumour because we don't get it all out. Okay, so why is radiation and chemotherapy not good enough? Well, the problem with radiation and chemotherapy is that it works essentially the same way, and it damages the blueprint. So I've already told you that the blueprint, this is where people sometimes find it difficult to understand, and I find it hard to understand sometimes, is that we've said that the blueprint, the DNA, is what makes cancer. There are mistakes in the DNA, okay, that make cancer drive forward in the oncogenes and the tumor suppressor genes. And that gives cancer the power to keep dividing and growing and dividing and growing. However, if you have too many mistakes, the whole thing breaks down and it will not work and the cell will die. And so the principle of chemotherapy and radiation is to make so many mistakes that even the cancer cell can't tolerate it anymore and it will stop dividing or just say, oh, forget it, man, I'm just going to die. And that's what cancer cells do when they're blasted with radiation and chemotherapy. You get so much damage across the DNA that they will eventually die. The problem with cancer cells is this. They have people in blue suits. No, they have mechanics who are able to repair the DNA. They have massively regulated DNA repair mechanisms often. We're working at, Birgit, who's here today, is a very clever scientist working on a particular childhood brain tumour, and she's discovered that, um, that this is particularly upregulated in the kind of a children's brain tumour. So what this means is a bit like, I used to have a Morris Minor, which is an appalling car, never buy a Morris Minor. But you're driving along in a Morris Minor and you've got your own mechanic in the seat and every time it stops he just jumps out, fixes the car, gets back in again and then you're off again and it's broken again, he gets out, fixes the car again. And that's what cancer cells can do. They have DNA repair mechanisms and they're able to actually repair their own DNA. So actually we have a whole series of new treatments trying to stop DNA repair. But that's partly why chemotherapy and radiotherapy aren't good enough because cells have ways of getting around them, getting around that DNA damage. So if surgery is not good enough and radiation is not good enough, what should we do? So what about new treatments? How can we develop new treatments? And this is really exciting. 
I think we're at a point in developing new treatments for cancer that we've never been at before. And you hear that on the news, you hear lots of stuff on the BBC or stuff like new cancer treatment, you know, and then somebody at the end goes, won't be in the clinic for 10 years, you know, that kind of thing. But it's actually very, very exciting. We're at a really, really cool point in understanding new treatments. So I want to tell you about certain kinds of new treatments that are available. Now, the first one I want to bring to your attention is something called repurposing. So this is a very attractive set of coat books. Obviously, everyone would want these in their house. Um, no, but somebody's obviously taken spanners, or wrenches as we say in the States, and turned them into coat books. That's repurposing, taking one thing that was used for something else and making it into a different function. And so repurposing is really cool. We do a lot of that in my lab. So what do we mean by repurposing? Well, you could generate new treatments for pap cancer by starting from scratch and generating a completely new drug. We are doing that. But another way is to say, look, somebody's generated this treatment over here. It works really, really well for colon cancer. I wonder if it works in childhood leukemia. Maybe it could. And you'd never test it before in childhood leukemia. So what we do is we screen it. So what you're looking at here is a horrendously complicated plot. This is 1.2 million compounds, including all the known drugs that exist, including uh, chemicals from the bottom of the ocean, from the Amazon, every single chemical space you can possibly imagine, every single structure. And we screen these against childhood brain tumor cells and ask, do any of these work? And the further up here they get, the more likely they are to work. And actually through this kind of approach, by testing existing drugs against, um, against our pediatric cell lines and models, we've been able to take a, a drug that's usually used in adult cancer and give it to kiddies with brain tumors. And so this is a, a really important mechanism that we've used to actually take existing cancer drugs used normally in adults and actually repurpose them for kids. And this is really, really important. This kind of science is important because it's very hard to do clinical trials in children. Children's cancer is the commonest cause from disease of death, but it's fairly rare. So actually doing a clinical trial in a child takes a long time in children's cancer. So you need to get it right. If we said, right, I think this is the right drug, it takes somewhere between two and five years to do that study, and if you go, oops, it was the wrong drug, then you've wasted all that time and you've wasted all those children's lives. But if we were to take all the known cancer drugs in adults and try them in children, it would take 400 years probably to test. So by doing these kind of laboratory studies, we can screen many, many, many compounds and go, right, this is the right drug, we think this is the best one, let's give this to children like Amy and see if it will work. And that's repurposing. What about molecular targeted therapies? So I won't take much time on this, but molecular targeted therapies are we know that there are mutations, alterations in that um, blueprint of life, that DNA that drives cancer forward. And that changes the shape of proteins. It makes them a slightly different shape. But those proteins are driving forward the disease. And so what you can do is design molecules like this. This is a molecule used to treat leukemia that fits snugly into this pocket here. So this white stuff is actually the molecule which is driving the cancer. It's a protein that shouldn't be there or not in this form, and there's a hole in there, and you can design a drug that fits snugly into this pocket, and it blocks it. It either will actually freeze the protein up from working, or it will stop it from binding another thing that's supposed to go in here. And that's how small molecule targets work, molecular target therapies work. 
They will bind into that pocket and stop them working. So this has been a real success story over the last five years. These are called molecular targeted therapies. And if you look at this, this is from America, but it's, um, this is the same all over the world for cancer. So since 2011, the last five years, 32 of these molecular targeted drugs have been approved for use in cancer. That's fantastic. And actually, there are many, many more available for leukemias mainly, but also for solid tumor called melanoma, skin cancer. And I think what's particularly exciting is all those blueprint mistakes we talked about at the beginning are now being used to actually understand which patients should get these treatments. So that's molecular targeted therapy, a really important part of treating cancer. And the last treatment I want to talk about is immunotherapy. Who's heard about immunotherapy? Excellent. So this is very exciting. There's lots of things in the news about this. I think it's going to be very exciting. It's not going to be the be-all and end-all, but it's going to be a brand new way of treating cancer, and it already is. So this is a sort of very simple way of thinking about it. It's the way I think about it. So here you have your immune cells. This is a T cell, which is normally responsible for killing stuff, including um, bacteria and funguses and stuff, but also it can attack tumors. But what the tumor's done here is it's managed to express a protein which would switch off the T cell. It can't do its normal job. It can't actually um, activate and kill the tumor. So what this new uh, immunotherapy do in one form is actually generate drugs that stops that from happening and allows the T cell to be activated and now work on the tumor and recognize it as foreign and kill the tumor cell. So that's one way that immunotherapy works. Another way, which I think is even more exciting, is this. And that's using something called neoantigens. And a good friend of mine, Charlie Swanton, who works in London at the Crick, is doing this in lung cancer. So this works by saying, actually, there are some antigens, some proteins that tumors express that they shouldn't normally express. And we can take the blood cells out of the patient, these normal blood cells. We can then get viruses to infect these cells. And the only reason we do that is we trick the cell into expressing protein in those T cells that it shouldn't normally do. It then goes to back, we can put it back in the patient, it seeks out their tumour, wherever it might be, and then using these new T cells starts to attack the tumour and kill it. And that's who immunotherapy works. And the really cool thing about immunotherapy is we know that our blood system is designed to find infections, to find abnormal stuff, to go around and find out where that abnormal stuff is and kill it in its traps. And that's why I think immunotherapy is so exciting. The other thing that's cool about immunotherapy is that if, you have, if you're exposed to an infection and then you become immune to it, what does that mean? It means you don't get it back because you've constantly got these cells going around your body looking for that abnormal bacteria or virus. We think that could be the same for cancer. Then you've got on board an army that's constantly looking for those abnormal cancer cells to kill them off. Okay, getting towards the end, if you're pleased to hear. But I think this sort of summarizes really what I think cancer will be like. Um, it is like this case now, but even more so in the next 10 to 20 years. And that's a combination. We're not going to see cancer, I don't think, cured by one of these alone. We'll continue to use radiotherapy, we'll continue to use chemotherapy, but we'll start to use these new treatments alongside them, new immunotherapy. And in fact, we're already testing immunotherapy with existing chemotherapies or with radiotherapy and to see if we can actually help activate the immune system using these. So that will be the characterization of chemotherapy and cancer therapy going forward. But I want to spend the last sort of five minutes talking about, I think, what the magic is that's here in Cambridge, and that's our cancer centre. So our cancer centre includes 605 physicians, nurses, scientists, 
trainees, anybody working on cancer throughout all of the schools in Cambridge, all of the colleges, that's the um, School of Biological Sciences, School of Physical Sciences, etc., all of those schools, as well as the Sanger Institute, and they're organized into teams, teams of scientists who are working 24-7, 365 days a year on cancer to identify new treatments. And we have one mission, even though there's 605 individuals throughout Cambridge, we have one mission, and that is to reduce the morbidity, that's the death, or uh, sorry, the morbidity, that's the illness, or death of patients with cancer through our research, through our treatment, through our education. We all have that one mission. Even though we're in different schools working on different cancers and in different colleges, that's the whole mission together. And our focus is always patients. And we're organized into 12 programs that are focused on the most common cancers and lethal cancers, as well as bringing into the middle of a cancer center, AstraZeneca and the, the fantastic drug companies that are here in Cambridge now, to start working with our doctors and nurses and scientists to develop the next generation of treatments. And that's all happening through our Cambridge Cancer Center. Not only do we work and locally, but you may or may not know that we are a national leadership as well. We're, we're actually one of only three CRUK major cancer centres throughout the UK. There are two very small universities that also share that, Oxford University and Manchester, um, but we're one of the three um, that are the major cancer centres. Not only that, if you look across Europe, we're the only cancer centre in the UK that's part of uh, Cancer Core Europe, which is the Europe's six most prominent cancer centres in France, in Spain, in Germany, in the Netherlands as well. Throughout, throughout Europe, we are the leading cancer centers, um, which together we're generating what we call a virtual cancer center. So you think you've got enough cancer patients in Cambridge to do a study. What happens if we can increase that to a catchment area of 60, 60 million, which is all of the patients that are actually treated or within the catchment area of these cancer centers? Then you can start to do something really powerful. And that's what Cancer Core Europe is. So I'm going to leave you with this slide, which I've shared with a lot of people, but probably not you. And this is really, to me, what encapsulates everything I've been talking about, and also shows how sad I am. Um, because I really love maps, really love old maps. And this is an old map, actually one of the oldest maps in the world, that was uh, first published in 1540. And although, obviously, ships have got a lot smaller since then, and the ice caps have melted, it's remarkably accurate, remarkably accurate. And in fact, if you look at a satellite picture from just recently, it's almost indistinguishable. And the point about telling that is I've gone through with you what cancer is and how we can treat it. And if you look forward to the future, we all look forward to a day when cancer is permanently dead. It's killed, and it's a historical thing which is in the textbooks. And I don't think that's too far away. I think it's going to take time. It will be an individual diseases. But we will march towards that. But the critical thing is, if we do the right kind of research now, we use the right tools, it doesn't matter whether our tools now will seem out of date in many years' time. If we get it right now and do the right kind of research, it will stand the test of time, and it will constantly improve the lives of patients and constantly reduce death from cancer. So thank you for your attention. If anyone's got any questions, I'll be happy.